Marvellous. Wow. This is great, isn't it? We're getting lots of good stuff this morning. Uh, just one more report. Uh, Rennes and uh, Julie uh, sent me a WhatsApp message this morning, and um, they said that uh, they've been, uh, after the brutal journey there, they've, they've kind of got their feet on the ground, and things are beginning to really motor there in India. You remember we sent them off and prayed for them last week. But they've been praying for rain in the village that we support and in the church that we support. Uh, the, the, the rice fields that we paid for um, are dry and dusty. There's, uh, there's no crop or harvest likely unless the Lord sends rain. And of course, they're nine hours ahead of us, so they've had their Sunday services already. And uh, Rennes said that they prayed and, they, and they, they asked the Lord about rain. And for the first time in a year, uh, it rained immediately after the morning service. Right there. Isn't that great? <laughs> Isn't that marvelous? Praise the Lord. So uh, Sally and I are leaving to go to the beach to meet our family, all our adult kids, their spouses, all our grandkids. They're coming from Europe and America, all over. And uh, we're all going to hang out on the beach. I'm dressed for the beach. As you can see, I'm ready to rock and roll. <laughs> and uh, we're going to drive down there to, uh, to, down to the coast at Tybee Island for a week. And so this is, a, this is a, a moment for me personally to mark as a milestone. Sally and I came here almost exactly six months ago to join you. And just before that, uh, I came, uh, you may remember, in January to preach on Psalm 23. Since that time, the Lord has had me share with you some of the big themes of Scripture, covenant and kingdom, and we've looked at what it is that Jesus wants from his church as we look at the way in which he examined the churches in Revelation, and we've studied together the seven churches in Revelation. And over these last couple of weeks, we've begun to ask ourselves this big question about ourselves. So then what does the Lord want from us? We've looked at the churches in Revelation. What is it that the Lord is saying to them and how that can apply to us? And so we ask ourselves, what is it then, Lord, that you're saying to us? And of course, we're a church that has publicly and self-consciously declared that we're a church that's committed to making disciples who make disciples. And along with that, We've committed ourselves to being a church that is expressed both in a public gathering like this and at nine o'clock this morning and in house churches throughout the community of Dayton and the Miami Valley. And the Lord has been gracious to take this prototype and has tested it. At times, I'm sure you've felt he's tested the prototype to destruction. That's what prototypes are for. And so now we're asking, if the Lord has tested the prototype and wants to take it to a production model so that this can be a pattern for the church here in the States and around the world, what is it that he has to do? And we looked a couple of weeks ago to say, well, perhaps the principal obstacle to being a church like the one that we want to be are the obstacles built into this pattern of behavior that is so common in the Western church where people gather, 
assuming that the people on the platform have all of the goods, all of the spiritual goods and services to share with those who have come. Somehow the people on the platform are closer to God. Somehow the people on the platform are the ones who God has given a a, a hotline to heaven so that the serfs and the peasants can gather to be fed. Well, you know what I think about that. And I think I know what you think about that. And so we've looked at that a couple of weeks ago and recognized that this is a default within the church and it's, it's hard for us to overcome it. If, it's not, if it wasn't hard, the church in America wouldn't be in the perilous state that it's in as far as discipleship is concerned. This is, this is a major obstacle and we need to keep on addressing it in ourselves. And then last week, we looked at what did the very first church look like? On the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, when the church was brought into being, when the church was filled with the Holy Spirit from on high, what did it look like? And we discovered that on the very first day that the 3,000 were gathered to the 120 disciples who had stayed with Jesus to the very end. Those 3,000 every day met in a gathering in the temple and in house churches in their homes. And so the pattern of the New Testament church was established on the day of Pentecost. And that pattern is one that we seek to emulate and imitate in our life here at Apex. So this week, we're going to just revisit one last time before next week we spend time in prayer and reflection, asking the Lord to seal in our hearts our commitment to be part of what it is that he's doing here in this area and around the world. One last time we'll look at what it is that the Lord wants to do among us. And to do that, I want to begin by reading a verse from the Acts of the Apostles. I want to read to you from the verse right there in chapter 19 of the Acts of the Apostles and verse 10. And it says this, the work of Paul in Ephesus went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, that's the geographical area around the city of Ephesus, heard the word of the Lord. That's a lot of people. There may have been half a million people who lived in Ephesus at the time. There were seven cities in which seven churches were planted that we looked at in Revelation. There were a couple of other cities, Colossae, that has a letter of its own addressed to it in the New Testament, Hierapolis, that's mentioned in the New Testament. So there are nine or 10 or maybe more churches planted into this wider region during the time it would appear that Paul came to Ephesus. There he, he laid an apostolic foundation that was built on by others. And this church, as we've said before, became the most important church for the next 400 years. From this church, the mission of God was generated around the world into the territories known and the territories beyond. How did it happen? Well, Paul had to embrace and learn something that was enormously important. The first time that we encounter 
the person of Paul is in Acts chapter eight, where Stephen has just been stoned to death, the first martyr of the church. He's given his faithful testimony before the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council of the, of the Jewish people there in Jerusalem, and he's, he's given his testimony. And his testimony is so stirring and challenging for the Sanhedrin that they, that they baying for his blood, chase him out of the building and stone him to death. And those who stoned him to death gave their coats to a young man called Saul, Saul of Tarsus. That young man, we're told, went from house to house, destroying the church. Acts chapter eight, verse two. From house to house, destroying the church. We know the story of Paul, how the Lord Jesus met him on the way to Damascus and changed his life forever. We know that he went through enormous challenges and struggles in the next decade. And we know that Barnabas came to get him and take him on the first missionary journey after they saw the great explosion of faith in the city of Antioch. And at the end of the first missionary journey, we know too that Paul returned to Antioch with Barnabas and there was shocked to discover that some leaders from Jerusalem had arrived in Antioch and were disturbing the Gentile believers by telling them that they had to become Jews if they were going to be true followers of Jesus. The men had to be circumcised. The people had to follow all of the ritual um, traditions of the Jews. And Paul confronted them and even confronted Peter who seemed to be being pulled into the debate on the wrong side of the debate from Paul's point of view. And so they gathered all of them with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem and they had the first council of the church, the council in Jerusalem, and they all agreed with Paul and Barnabas and they wrote a letter to the churches that they had planted in their first missionary journey to tell them not to worry. They did not have to become Jews to be followers of Jesus. Paul gets back to Antioch with Barney and he says, Barney, let's go. Let's go and tell them. Let's go and read the letter to them. And Barney says, sure, let's do it. Let's take uh, John Mark with us. John Mark had kind of burned out and blown up on the first missionary journey and gone home to mother. Paul said, I don't know. I'm not sure he's up to it. Barney says, well, yeah, I think he is. So they have a big conversation. And, um, and it was fine. I mean, in the end, Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus and Paul takes one of the leaders from Jerusalem, Silas, and heads back to the churches of Galatia. They go through the churches of Galatia. They go to Lystra. They find a young man who's been, who's been fashioned in the faith by his mother and grandmother, a young man called Timothy, and they take him into the team and they continue across mainland Turkey called Asia Minor in those days. And as they walk through mainland Turkey, they want to go to Ephesus, the city that we've just been talking about, because Paul knows that this is a place that if the gospel can be established there, its, its lines of communication and its influence in the world will make it one of the great platforms for the mission of God. But as they're making their way across Turkey, the Holy Spirit prevents them from going south. And so they look to the north and they say, well, maybe the Black Sea and the beaches of Bithynia are the place to go to, but the spirit of Jesus prevents them. Well, they can't go back and they can't go left and they can't go right, and so they continue straight. And they find themselves at the terminus 
of the great east-west highway at a city called Troas, locally known as Alexandria, because this is the city where Alexandria the Great, Alexander the Great has landed with his army to conquer the world just south of the ancient city of Troy. Perhaps there are all kinds of symbols and statues of of Alexander in the city. Who knows what it was that the Lord used to sear into the mind a particular image. But during the night, the Lord visited Paul in a dream and a man from Macedonia addressed him and said, come over and help us. Paul and his team had never been to Europe. The gospel, as far as we know, had never been taken to Europe intentionally, of course, unintentionally by people scattering around the world. But now God was sending a missionary team to Europe and it was Paul's team. It said that they all got together, they realized that the Lord was sending them so they got in a boat and they went via the the island of Samothrace to the city of Neapolis on the coast of Macedonia and then to the principal city of Macedonia, Philippi place where Brutus made his last stand after overseeing the assassination of Julius Caesar. He made his last stand there. And when Octavian came and defeated him and his troops, he fell on his sword. And so this is a place of great martial history in the, in the Roman mentality. And so when legion, uh, legionaries uh, wanted to leave the legions and they wanted to take up their pension, They often took their pension by having land given to them around the city of Philippi. And when you go to the city of Philippi today, as I've been fortunate to do, you'll see that there's kind of first century casinos and gaming halls. And everything that you would imagine a group of military guys would want in a place where they went to just spend their money. But of course, they spoke Latin there. And so the normal language of the gospel was not available and there was no synagogue. Now Paul, of course, knew the strategy that Jesus had given his disciples, the strategy of the person of peace. And clearly he couldn't find a person of peace amongst those that he encountered in Philippi, this masculine city. So he went to the river where any who believed in the God of the Bible might be praying And there they would be reciting the Psalms and remembering the stories of the scriptures and taking the ritual ablutions of the Jews. And there he found a place of prayer where today the chapel of Lydia is found. And there's a group of women praying. And they share the gospel with this group of women. And their leader is uh, Lydia from Thyatira, a lady of high birth and noble origins, no doubt, because she's operating in high fashion. The word for high fashion at the time is dealer in purple cloth. She's come to a ready-made market where people have disposable income for the kinds of goods that she has available. And she says to Paul, if you consider me worthy of receiving the gospel that you've shared today, then come and live in my house. Come and live in my household. Come and live in my Greek word oikos, the extended family. Here's a woman who's making high fashion products 
in a household, no doubt, filled with women who were both the manufacturers and the models of what it was that was being made. Imagine how that goes over in the first century. Four male missionaries turn up in town and they go and live with the supermodels. <laughs> How's that gonna fly? How would that fly today in Kettering? Just think about it. It's very interesting the way that Luke describes Lydia. Some have speculated that maybe Luke stayed on. He's not mentioned in the text afterwards and maybe he fell in love, who knows? That's a story outside the Bible. But the way that he describes it is really interesting. It says, and eventually she persuaded us. I bet the young guys didn't need that much persuading. But anyway, they go and stay in the oikos, in the extended family of Lydia. And the first church in Europe is planted in a household, not a synagogue. Now that's really important because all of the missionary models and methods that Paul has used in his first missionary journey have started with the synagogue. But now in the second missionary journey, as Paul makes this great step into Europe, it's not the synagogue, it's the household that is the key instrument of God and the key vehicle of mission. Paul leaves two house churches behind in Philippi before he leaves the Philippian jailer who comes to faith when he hears and sees the effects of an earthquake as Paul and Silas are praying at midnight in the jail. Paul is, ex is, a, is ex escorted uh, with honor from the city as the, as the city elders realize that they have a Roman citizen in the prison and they've made a big mistake. And so Paul is led out of the city and goes and plants the churches in the rest of Macedonia. Thessalonica and Berea. And eventually he's taken from Berea down to Athens. And then after a, a significant work in Athens that we'll look at together in the coming months, Paul goes to Corinth. Corinth at that moment was a place that was full of people from Rome. Rome had had a great explosion of urban unrest. Suetonius tells us that it was because of a dispute about a man called Crestus in the Jewish community. And most historians believe that it's Christos and not Christus. It's not a U, it's an O. This upset, this disturbance, of course, the Romans are congenitally afraid of urban unrest and so they send the whole of the Jewish community out of Rome tens of thousands of people. And of course, their natural homeland is back in Israel. And so they make their way east and there's a bottleneck. All the boats come in at Corinth. There's a nine kilometer isthmus of land until you get to Centrea. And they would take the boats out of the water. They'd take the, the cargo out of the boats and then put the boats on rollers and push them for nine kilometers and then put the boats back in the water, put the cargo back in and send them on. A couple of hundred years ago, somebody said, why don't we dig a ditch and call it a canal? Everybody said, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll do that instead. So that's what happened. But in the days of Paul, that's what they did. And of course, it's this huge bottleneck and there are thousands of people. And what do all those thousands of, of refugees need? Well, they need lots of things, but one of the things they need are tents. So Paul has a way 
of supporting himself. His team have been scattered along the journey of the second missionary journey right the way back to Philippi. And he's waiting for them to regather. And when they do regather, they come with a large gift from the church in Philippi, Lydia and the rest of them, which means that he's released from his tent-making responsibilities. But when he's in Corinth, what he does first is he joins a household. And interestingly, the household is often named with the woman first in the relationship between the man and wife. Now, that doesn't suggest that there was a, a kind of a, a, an unusual relationship between Priscilla and Aquila. It may well be that she was of noble origin or of noble birth, or it may have been that she was the more public figure in that she was the one more recognized in, we don't know. But it was often called Priscilla and Aquila rather than the other way around. And Paul joins their household. It's the first thing he does. He shares in the synagogue, but he's living in their household. And when the synagogue no longer wants to hear the gospel, he moves next door and all of his operations are in a house. Are you starting to get the idea of what's going on in the second missionary journey? Paul has learned the most important lesson in the spread of the gospel. He's come to understand and embrace the most important vehicle for the mission of God in the first few centuries. The Christian household is the key. At the end of his second missionary journey, Paul, having been encouraged by the Lord that he's not going to suffer any loss, that the, the Lord has many people in Corinth for him to share the gospel with and see saved, he takes a Nazarite vow you shave all the hair off your body, if you want to do this. Uh, you shave all the hair off your body. You put all of the hair in a bag and you give the bag to the priest in Jerusalem. And he puts it on the altar as a living sacrifice. It's interesting. When Paul comes back to Corinth, at the end of his third missionary journey, he writes the letter to Romans and says, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Anyway, he's back there at the end of the second missionary journey. He puts all the hair in a bag. He, Because we're told it's a Nazarite vow. And so he heads off towards Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem, he stops off at Ephesus. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila to start the work of planting a church there. And he goes to Jerusalem. And what does he do in Jerusalem? Well, we don't know. But this is my speculation. And it's a speculation shared with many other Bible scholars. Paul gets to Jerusalem and asks the Lord three times. Take this thorn from my flesh. And what is the thorn? People have speculated, mostly because they've not read the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, a thorn in the flesh is a person. God says to Jacob, if you don't get rid of the Canaanites, they'll be like thorns in your flesh. Paul is at least a man of the Bible. He's not going to come up with another metaphor. And so here's the thorn in the, Who are these thorns in the flesh? They're the ones who are coming around troubling him and coming to his churches and telling the people that they have to become Jews again. The Judaizers. They're the ones that trouble him to death. And he says, Lord, get them. I don't care how you get them. Just get them. And the Lord says, no. He says, well, maybe I should put it another way. How about you just 
kind of give them something else to do other than mess with my churches? The Lord says, no. And a third time he asks the Lord, and the Lord says this, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul goes from Jerusalem back to Antioch, a bit of R&R, and then heads off through Asia Minor, through mainland Turkey, and he's making his way back to Ephesus. The Lord encourages him along the way. He meets some, some disciples of John the Baptist who've never been baptized into the name of Jesus, and he baptizes them into, into the name of Jesus, and there's a mini Pentecost, and it must have made him think, is this the Lord doing something significant here? It surely was. Because Paul goes to Ephesus and sees Priscilla and Aquila and joins their household, the household of the tent makers. But just a few weeks after he's there, even though he's been invited back to share, it says they became obstinate and publicly maligned the way. Acts 19 verse eight. And then it says, And so Paul took the disciples and had discussions with them daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And then we have this verse. The verse in chapter 19 and verse 10. Let's just go to that. This, what? Paul meeting daily for discussions in the hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. How? Well, when Paul returns to Ephesus after his, the completion of his third missionary journey, he's gone back down to Corinth. He's, he's written the letter to the Romans as an introduction. He's gonna go to Rome. He's not quite sure how. We discover he goes there in chains, of course. And when he comes back and speaks to the elders of the church in Ephesus, the, the people who are overseeing the network of house churches, he says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 20, if we can just pop that up on the screen, he says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly in the hall of Tyrannus and from house to house. How about that? The man who began by destroying the church by going from house to house in Acts chapter eight is now going from house to house building the church. And what's cool for us is, who knows whether it's by accident or intention, somehow, We've got to this place. And you and I, we meet in public. Right here, this is public. And in house to house. And if this is the prototype that the Lord has tested to destruction so that it can be a production model, then you would fully understand, would you not, that a 21st century version of what it is that we see in the Acts of the Apostles would most certainly be something that God would be behind. And so, we find ourselves 
On that same continuum we looked at last week, not temple at one end, but public gathering, which is a temple, and house to house at the other end. And what does Paul do? What does Paul do? Well, we know what Paul does. He tells us what he does. He trains. There's training going on. It says discussion. The suggestion is that there's a rabbinic process of question and answer, what the Greeks call the Socratic method. Many of you, if you've been raised in particular traditions or particular professions, maybe a medical profession, have been trained in a Socratic method. The discussion model is the model that Paul has. He'll say something and then get people to respond and think it through. This rabbinic model is a model that Paul has been raised in, is the model of Jesus as he trains and and shapes his disciples. It's the model that Paul describes from Ephesus as he's writing to the church in Corinth. And he says this, he says, you don't have many fathers. You have lots of guardians and teachers who can teach you stuff, but you don't have many fathers who you can imitate. See, the training model is information and imitation that leads to transformation. And that's what's happening right here. And as the training takes place, day after day, so something begins to occur. The whole region comes under the sound of the gospel. I made mention of it last week. Colossians 1 verse 7 tells us Paul's writing to one of the churches that's planted during this period, uh, more than likely. And he says, I don't know you guys in in, in Colossae, but I know of you by reputation. I know your reputation of being being spirit-filled Christians because I've heard it from Epaphras, who I sent out as my representative. And so Epaphras was one of the people getting trained and he and his household journeyed to Colossae and planted the church in Colossae and other households were sent out to do the same thing. Don't you find this exciting? It's amazing. This is how God did it in the first century. This is how God wants to do it today. There are other things that appear to be part of the package of this continuum. One of the things that Paul writes about in his Corinthian correspondence, which begins in in Ephesus. He's writing from Ephesus. He he sends the first letter with Timothy. There's not the best response to the letter that he was expecting. And so he writes the harsh letter that's not included in the New Testament. Holy Spirit decided not to include that one. I'm not quite sure what it said because... uh, if he's any harsher than the things that he said to the Galatians, it must have, been, it must have taken the paint off the walls. <laughs> so we don't have the harsh letter, but we have the, we have the third letter, the, second, the, the letter that we call 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he's, he's talking about giving. He's saying, I'm gathering some money and I'm going to all of the churches and I'm going to give it to the poor in Jerusalem. Giving is part of the package 
and it's something that happens in public. And of course, he's going right back to when his best buddy, Barnabas, sold a field and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the disciples in the temple. In Acts chapter four, you can read it from Acts chapter four, verse 34 and following. I don't know how good we are at public giving here. We're good at the secret giving, and that's fine. You know, not having what left hand know what the right hand is, it's all that's all good. You kind of secretly put it in the box at the back there. I'm not sure that we're that good at public giving. And it's not about showing off or being one of those that trumpets the fact that they're making a great offering in the temple. It's about this. It's something that is consistent with the life of God expressed in the people of God down through the centuries, through the New Testament church and into the Old Testament people. And it is this, that we give as a demonstration of a life full of thanksgiving. And it's a public declaration and it's a public witness to anyone who sees that your life is in the hands of God and that you've chosen not to take on the alternative God that Jesus says is the one that's probably most challenging, the God of mammon. But you've taken your money and not allowed it to become mammon and you've offered it to God. We need to find ways of doing that together. But as we do, what the Lord will begin to shape in us is the life of Jesus. The church is intended in every expression of its life, whether in public or in private. The church is supposed to express the life of Jesus. We're the people of Jesus. We're the body of Christ. Jesus was constantly attending to his relationship with his Father. He was always praying. He taught his disciples to always pray. Paul spoke about constantly praying. And so we'll learn how to do that both publicly and privately. And of course, this is not something new to you. You've been doing this for many years, many of you. But we'll learn to have this balanced life that looks like Jesus that has a relationship that is upward, a relationship towards the church where we can break bread and have fellowship with one another, the relationship inwards. And, of course, the relationship outwards. Jesus spent his time with his disciples, but also said that I've come to seek and to save the lost. The church was not always able to meet in public during those first centuries of the Roman Empire and the church. The Roman Empire often persecuted the church and so public meetings were not possible. But because the house churches were able to live out the entirety of the life of Jesus, the up, the in and the out, by the time of Constantine, which we looked at last week, 50% of the Roman Empire had become Christians. And so in the early church, this worked. Surely it can work again. But maybe you're like me and you say, but is there one example of when it ever happened before? Any other time other than the New Testament church? It seems like a long time ago, Mike. Well, the medieval church did it. We don't often think of the medieval church because we think that somehow they weren't really Christians. But they really were. And they really did amazing things. 
Pope Gregory was going through the marketplace and he saw some guys and he said, who are those people? And the people who were with him, this is in 595 AD, so a long time ago still. He's walking through the market and they, and they say, oh, they're angles. And he says, yeah, they really are, aren't they? They look like angels. And they said, he's angles. And he said, yeah, they really do look like angels. Where are they from? He said, they're from Britannia. Tall, peeled, blonde hair. Weird accent. <laughs> he says, we need to send some missionaries to those people. So he, he gets some guys together. He gets his best team together and they go and they, they plant a church in Canterbury. And for the next generation, they're, they're, they're building churches and planting churches in the Roman fashion. And the Roman fashion was, if you build it, they'll come. So it's kind of an attractional model. And they encounter another kind of church. They didn't know there were any Christians there in Britannia. The Celts were there. And the Celts functioned in households. And at the Synod of Whitney, of, of Whitby, at the Synod of Whitby in 664 AD, the Celtic church and the Roman church came together and they had both gatherings and house churches expressed as part of their life. And because of that, they planted and sent missionaries across all of Northern Europe, Europe that would become Protestant Europe, Europe that would become the very seedbed of world mission. It's happened before. It can happen again. If you've read that book, How the Irish Saved the World, some of these stories are in there. It's quite amazing to see. But what of us? What is the Lord saying to us? Well, the Lord is saying that this picture, this pattern is the prototype and the production model of what it is that he wants us to live out faithfully. We're not worried about what other people do. What we're concerned about right now is what it is that he's called us to do. And so we live it out faithfully and we go after it with every intentional cell in our body. And we ask the Lord this, Lord, at every expression of church at Apex, help us to reflect the person of Jesus and live the upward life towards the Father. The inward life towards the other believers supporting and loving them. And the outward life towards the lost. And may it be that people look back on this church and they say, do you know that weird group of people that were so kind of challenged and many times felt like they were really quite broken. They did something amazing. Who'd have thought it had come out of Dayton? Is there an amen anywhere? Amen. Worship team are gonna come and lead us. We're almost at that moment where we need to go and gather the kids and so if that's you, then please do as we sing this last song. But there may be some other thing that you need to do in that last song. In the first service, I felt like the Lord was speaking to me to just consecrate myself again to this, this vision, this clarity that the Lord had called me to. Maybe he's saying the same thing to you as he said to others 
on previous weeks. If that's so, then just come and pray and others will be unintrusive in the way that they pray for you and um, the Lord will complete our time together by doing that. So let's sing and let's worship and let's look to the Lord for the things that he'll do amongst us.